want to get into our text, um, our passage, this portion of scripture that we began to look at last week, because we've been talking about this idea of living in fullness every day, this idea of having the, the joyful reality or God's joyful reality in our lives. And um, you must understand that that is something that was designed to show up not just when things are going our way, that it really is designed to show up when things are not always going our way. That's when it actually is most meaningful. So we're going to look at this passage, and hopefully and we will just listen to the words of Jesus here, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about it and how it can apply to our lives. Because everything about this, this idea of the vine, this imagery that Jesus uses, and you know, Jesus constantly, I just need to say that I, I often refer to it, but he uses image, uh, figurative language, he would tell stories, parables, he used all kinds of mechanisms for engaging us because he, I really think, you know, Jesus knew that, that we as human beings are hardwired for story. That, that art and music and melody and expression have a way, and story with its tension has a way of engaging us and opening us up to spiritual things that maybe sometimes just straight out teaching might not actually be able to do quite as much. And so he's using language. Now remember, he's talking to his disciples here. They've just left the, the upper room. He's on his way through the streets of Jerusalem down the Valley of Kidron to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. There he's going to be uh, arrested and ultimately brought to trial and crucified. He understands where things are going. Judas has already gone into the night, it says. And there's already things in motion. But along the way, he pauses. Many people think that Jesus paused and actually under the, under the moonlight of, of the Passover that they were able to actually see the vines and he has this moment where he teaches them one last time about some deep principles about what it means to live in my life. And as I'm about to give my life, I want you to think about what I'm trying to do in your life. And so there's this teaching, this lesson, this, this picture we're given. And this is what brings us to John 15, verses 1 through 8. Jesus says this, I am the true vine. I am the vine, the true. And my father is the vine dresser. He's the keeper of the vineyard. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And we talked about this, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it might bring more fruit out. Two kinds of branches. One branch that doesn't bring fruit, and another one that does. He says, you are already, even though you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you, I still want you to abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Unless you live in me, stay connected. This will not work right. The way life flows in me is by you learning how to live in me and me in you. He goes on to say, I am the vine. Listen, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But don't ever forget this, that without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and they throw them into this fire and they're burned. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is really glorified and honored and truly lifted up that you may bear much fruit, that he wants us to bear fruit. So you will be, if you do this, my disciples. Now, those are the words of Jesus. At least the first portion of his teaching is right here. There's a lot going on. I mean, the idea of pruning was commonplace for them. They understood the metaphor. They understood exactly why, what Jesus was getting at, the, this concept that was a part of their everyday life. I mean, remember, they were an agrarian culture. 
vines, vineyards. It was just part of their everyday life. This, they understood that there were, you know, in a vine, there were, there was two kinds of branches. There was a branch that would go out that was non-fruit bearing. And they understood that it, in their um, place where they lived, in, in the months of December and January, for what that would be for us, those dead branches would be cut off. And frequently, the branches would be left on the ground, and people would actually gather them up, and they would use them um, to, you know, as kindling wood. In fact, it's very possible that that night, people had gathered up wood, um, ports of the vine, as it were, and used it, in, and they were standing by the fires and warming themselves. Jesus also knew, as they well knew as well, that there were other branches, though, on the vine that, that bore fruit. And so you would cut the dead branches off, or the non-fruit-bearing branches, you would cut them off so that it would not sap out or take away the life that was meant to go into the fruit-bearing branches. And then even the fruit-bearing branches were trimmed back periodically, pruned, cut back, so that they would come back stronger, more fruitful, that the fruit on them would actually be enhanced and, and have better quality. So the image is really clear with the disciples. They're getting what he's saying at some level. And so as we're thinking about this, as we're thinking about this whole concept of what it means to examine our own life, as we talked about this last week. Now, again, I know this is directly for those of us who've made this decision to follow the Lord, and, and we, we're, we're thinking seriously about what it means to grow. Because you've got to understand so much of this imagery, the vine, fruit, uh, green, movement, it's life. It's all about life. Jesus is saying it's not just believing the right things. It's about the life in God. It's about relationship. We'll talk about that. But you can't help but see that he's using a metaphor to describe the life with him, and it's a growing thing. It's a growing thing that bears fruit. It's not a static thing. It's not just a, a, a belief thing. It's a life engagement thing. It's, it's a, now, beliefs matter, but it's about living it out. It's about the everydayness of our life. It's about growing. It's about changing. It's about becoming it's about moving forward with God. It's about letting him write that story, new chapters in the story of our life. It's about something that God wants to do in every one of us. And he keeps working in our lives. You see that? You see what he's saying? I'm working in your life to grow you. If you begin to walk with me, remember, this walk is meant to be the growing life. That's how it works. It won't work right any other way. We were born to bear fruit. That's what Jesus is saying. So we understand this. We get that part of it. I want to I sort of apply it in a certain kind of way. I want to look at this passage. I would like to say, you know, here are, in these first eight verses, a couple of keys to living the abundant life. So let's go ahead and put the first one up there. And I'm going to suggest the first one has to do with something that is referred to here in verse number seven. It has to do with living in his word and learning how to, uh, you know, how to ask. I've had, I've had a lot of conversations with different ones after the services and you know this weekend, and uh, it's been fascinating to me to hear how everybody has wrestled with this teaching, and uh, that's a good thing. Uh, not everything is meant to be black and white. It's actually meant to be thought about and pondered, and uh, worked with, like we're working with a piece of clay and we're kneading it and uh, working it and trying to fashion it and sit with it and think about it, engage it. Jesus, I think Jesus a lot of times intentionally provoked us to pursue things beyond the surface level. The easy place sometimes is to make everything really clear. The more challenging thing is to force us to grow, to work it into our own life. And so this particular thing that we note here when he says, listen, let me talk to you about how true life works with me. He says, it's designed to work by learning how to live in my word. Look at verse 7. It says, abide in my word. 
What does that mean? Live in my... He says, for this to work right, for this life flow to come from the vine into the branch that bears fruit, there has to be an immersion into my word. It might sound like, oh, well, you know, that's so elemental, but I'm going to suggest that you are never... Everybody who's an expert at something has first learned to master the fundamentals. And the most basic component of the Christian life, which means it's a relationship, has to do with learning how to engage God on a regular basis through his word. I was talking to somebody. I said, look, if you're serious about this, and they were telling me, I'm very serious. I want to grow. I want to grow in my... I've, I've known about God a little bit, but I've got to a place in my life where, you know, something's hitting me. And this was a person who was somewhat advanced in their years, and I was looking at them, and I was hearing them. And you know what they were telling me? They said, faith is awakening. Something's awakening in me. I started coming here. I didn't want to come here. They were just coming with their wife. They agreed to do it. But he says, somewhere along the way, God started to speak and touch me. And I want to grow. I thought, that's, that's like music to my ears, right? I love that. And I, and I said, let me tell you, it sounds like it's basic, but you gotta, you, if you're really serious, you've got to start actually reading his word because he says, the way life flows is through his words. And so part of the reason we did this thing around Easter by giving out the devotionals that we gave out and is just because we wanted people to really prepare their heart. Easter's a great time to think about the cross, to think about his, his resurrection, to think about what life in God means. And I would suggest that as some of us, it may be a, a time for us in these weeks leading up to Easter to actually take a moment and read one of the four, testaments, uh, four testimonies of the life of Christ, maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Maybe we just read the final, we just ponder the final week of Christ and all that is devoted to that. Maybe we just read a portion of John. Maybe it's just this 15th chapter leading up to his crucifixion. But we're sitting with it. We're engaging it. We're letting it penetrate us. We're pondering it. We're, we're asking God to open things up to us. Engage us, Lord. This idea of living in his word. And he says, you know what? If you live in my words, he says, something's going to happen. You're going to ask for things, and you're going to see God move in, in very much in the way that you asked. And it's not like God is saying, Jesus is saying, well, you know, God's a genie. You just rub him a certain way, and then all of a sudden, out pops, you know, you get three requests, and whatever you want, you get. It's not like that. What he's saying is, and listen, listen to me on this one, because it's important. As we begin to live in his word, we begin to get opened up to the things God wants to do. As we get open to the things God wants to do, we begin to ask them. As we begin to ask things according to his will, he delights in bringing it to pass. Because it's, it's almost like we get to be a participant in the purposes of God. As we move in accordance with his will and plan and begin to call it into being through our prayers, we become a co-active agent, as it were, with the living God. There's something about the power of prayer when it's locked into his purpose. And that purpose often is revealed as we learn to abide in his words. And that sounds a little bit esoteric. All I'm saying is basically this thing actually can work. It's a real deal. God's alive. He moves. He hears prayer. Prayers work. They're powerful. But really, it's designed to be in harmony. When we move our prayer in harmony with his purpose, things are unlocked. And, and that is a powerful dynamic when we get it. So one of the keys to living in the reality of God it's not just so that we can be Christ-like, and I want to be Christ-like in the way I love people, treat people, live my life, but it's to have the Christ life in me. And ultimately, Christ-like is connected to Christ's life. It really is. It's not just about being what he looks like, 
but it's about learning how to live in his reality, in his presence, to hear his words for our life, to be a blesser where we go, to listen for the active God who says to us, you need to just pray a blessing over this person in your heart. Um, listen, this word is a word for you in my word. You claim it as your own, ponder it, think about it, embrace it, um, let it speak life into you. This is a living, dynamic thing. That's what he's getting at. So one of the keys to abundant living is learning how to really live close to his word, abide in my words, let my words abide in you, learning how to ask God, how to pray. But secondly, and not really that, obviously, that disconnected, something that we might, we're going to have a hard time with is this idea of embracing trials as a friend, really. And if you think about it, verse, in verse number uh, 2, this whole idea of pruning, right? Again, this idea that the, the branch that bears fruit, he prunes it back so that it can bear more fruit. I don't think it's always easy, by the way, to tell the difference between normal adversity that just comes along with in life, you know, the everyday problems of life. We live in a broken world. Bad things happen. Sometimes they happen to us. And I, I'm not saying it, can always, it always makes sense. Some things make a whole lot of sense. We know exactly how it happened, and we know who did it. Sometimes the hardest part is we did it. And that can be really hard because we want to blame somebody else. But it's hard because we feel in our heart. It's actually our issue. And then there are other times where, honestly, for some of us who've been following the Lord for a while, there might be a term that, that more seasoned Christians might use when we talk about spiritual warfare and this idea of resistance at a spiritual level. And it's not always, listen to me, what I'm trying, this is an important thing I'm trying to lay, lay as a foundational point, that it's not always easy to tell why certain things are happening to us. Sometimes we know, and we have a clear sense of how we're to approach it. I was talking to a, a young lady after service, and she was saying, you know, I think I know how I'm supposed to approach something now. I said, that's good. You know, if God, because sometimes it's clear, this is how you're to pray. This is what, how you're to see this. But a lot of times I've found I can't tell the difference. It's not that clear. And if you think about it, that's exactly, because maybe there's things going on at multiple levels. And we're trying to say, why is this? How should I think of this? And maybe it's happening at a moment. For example, think about where we're heading to. Where are we going? We're going to the words of the cross. Okay, look at the cross for a just for a moment. Ponder. Think about this. On one hand, the cross, this idea of Jesus being crucified, had everything to do with human beings making choices that, you know, the, the leaders of Jerusalem, the, Israel, the leaders of Israel of, of Jesus' day, the Roman governor, Pilate, the soldiers who hammered him onto the cross, his own disciple who betrayed him. There's clearly things that were uh, products of human choices that were made, his rejection, his crucifixion, his, you know, everything that happens to him. He's, he, there are people who decided to do it. So on the one hand, it's very clear. Jesus, at some level, was put to death by real people. But on the other hand, Jesus fully enters into that moment saying, nothing that is happening here is not part of what God is involved in. And he says this. There's this one telling moment when he's talking with Pilate. And you can read about it in the book of John. And it's fascinating because Pilate's telling him, don't you understand? Don't you understand? I have the power to release you. I have the power of life and death. And Jesus says to him, you have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. And it staggers Pilate. He staggers. It hits him square. It's like, you don't understand. Yes, you're making choices, but there's something far more profound happening, and you have no clue. It's both and. It wasn't either or. Everything was happening. From a human perspective, it was the worst of humanity. No question. 
human leadership conspiring to put to death the beautiful one. But on the other hand, Jesus was moving in harmony with the plan of his father. Both were true. They were not disconnected realities. They were not something one or the other. It was both and. Intermingled at such a level that we can't even tear it apart. That's how deeply entwined it was. That'll make you, that'll, now see, what I'm trying to say is, in some ways, a lot of the issues that we experience in life, they're multi-layered. They're, there's, it's not like it's just one straight answer. Oh, this is what it is. One thing I do know, I, I've come to believe strongly, based upon things like what we're being taught right here in John 15, is that even the worst of things, God can bring good out of every setback, every difficulty, every challenge, every issue that we're struggling with. God is capable of bringing good from it if we will embrace him. And some things, listen, some things God will actually use to grow us in ways that we could have never grown in any other way. Because part of the deal is, he says, if you are my true follower, listen, then I want to work in your life. And when I work in your life, part of what that is going to be, now listen, he's saying, it's going to be, it's going to involve pruning. And this idea of pruning is, it's going to involve times where we're going to be greatly challenged. Because I think about it in the natural, that pruning involves a cutting away. It's, there's a cost, there's a pain. And that is not fun stuff. But it is designed, he says, to grow us. So God uses things that are not joyful to produce a greater maturity and quality in our life that can come no other way. Once we understand that, it helps us to think about not just why am I going through this or why is this happening to me, but what is God saying to me and what does God want to do through it all? Like Joseph, who says later on in his life to his brothers who had betrayed him and sold him into slavery, and in many ways Joseph is a type of, 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 a, of a, a picture of Jesus. And he says, look, you meant it for evil. No question about it, my brothers. But God has used it for good. And there's something there. I'm going to suggest that the worst thing that can ever happen to us is for God not to be interested in growing us. There's this amazing passage. Because I'll tell you why I say this. Because someone asked, there's been different times where someone asked, what's the worst, what's the worst kind of judgment? And I said, it's actually not being corrected. It's actually not being punished. The worst kind of judgment is when God leaves us alone. And I was reminded of a passage, because you see, in the Old Testament, you're going to have to stay with me on this. In the Old Testament, there were kings. Many of us have heard of King David, his son, King Solomon. But after that, King Solomon's rule, the nation of Israel broke up. It had a civil war. Their war did not get resolved. It, it broke up the nation. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes. The 10 tribes of the north, whose dominant tribe in the north was Ephraim, was often called Israel and also synonymously Ephraim because of its dominant tribe. The southern tribe or southern kingdom was essentially two tribes, one dominant, one very tiny one. Judah was the predominant tribe. It, Jerusalem was there. Jewish, Jew, Judah. And in that place, that southern tribe, there was, they had differences between the two kingdoms. And this northern kingdom was uniquely stubborn, according to God. A lot of times people read the Old Te Older Testament and they say, wow, you know, God's so angry. And I say, actually, actually, you know what? Um, I want you to try to think of it in a different lens. Because if you actually read the prophets, 
you realize that what you're actually reading is a love story. And God loves his people. And he called them out and he made a nation who would bring forth a savior. And that story ultimately leads us to Jesus. So there's a giant finger in the Old Testament pointing to the cross. And then there's, a, there's this whole weaving in of a plan of God. It's fascinating. I said, but one thing you miss, I go, listen, so much of what God is dealing with here is that he's not as angry as you think he is. He's just really hurt by his people. Because his people would often turn their back on him. And he would say things like, what are you doing? You don't want me anymore? You, you, you know, they get involved with the practices of the nations, the, some of the pagan nations around them. They turn their back on God. They start offering, you know, worship to idols and human sacrifices. And they start participating in the idolatry of the lands around them. On what, and God would do things like send them prophets to call them back. And he says that they would kill the prophets that God sent. In fact, Jesus refers to that in his own last days when he's saying, you know, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how long have I longed to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks? I'd like to take you in my arms, but you would not have me. Oh, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, right? Well, Hosea was one of those prophets who God sent to talk to his people. And finally, this po God gets to the point where the northern kingdom, he's, he's, he's saying, you guys, clearly, you don't want me anymore. And I'll just put this verse up. Just check it out. It's pretty intense. He says this, for Israel, look what he, how he describes it. You know what he says to his prophet? He says, look, for Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn calf. Think about, you know, just won't cooperate. He says, now the Lord will let, you know what? The Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Basically, you know what? They don't want me. They don't want what I have to give. They'd rather be somewhere else. Well, guess what? They're on their own. And you know what a lamb in an open country is? In big trouble. That's what a lamb in an open country is. That's what it, it is like. You don't want to be a lamb in open country. It's like now you're, guess what? You're on your own then. You get what you want because what you want isn't me. So fine. Go your way. But then he go. in fact, I put the whole mini passage right there in your handout. Look what he says here. For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim, I refer to them, the largest tribe of Israel, is joined to his idols. Let him be. Let him be. Other loves. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotly continually. Her leaders dearly love dishonor in my eyes. He says, the wind has wrapped her up in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Poetically, he says, that wind of their false worship will carry them to their own destruction and judgment. Now, even there, we know that ultimately they were devoured by the nations around. They were devoured, literally taken. Predators came and just took them to foreign lands. But God still pursued them and ultimately brought them back home. But it was a long process of pain. It didn't have to be. That was not his intention. The Lord loves us. He pursues us. In fact, I, I put this other portion of scripture there from Proverbs 3, just a great passage. It says this in Proverbs 3. It says that, my child, don't reject the Lord's discipline when it's working in your life. Don't get offended at God when he's trying to challenge things in us. There might be some dead branches in our lives that God's trying to cut out. He's challenging us to let them go. And you're saying, why, are you, why do I have to be put in this position? You know why? Because God loves us. 
says, don't, be, don't reject the Lord's discipline. Look at this. And don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those whom he loves. Just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. I delight in my children. I love them enough not to say, I don't care what you do. Do whatever you want. See, that's not love. Love doesn't say, go, whatever. You know, do whatever you want. No big, I don't even, don't even bother. I'm not even interested. Do whatever you want to do, do it. That's not love. Especially when what we see is happening is going to be damaging. You know, if you love, a father loves whom he, this is an example the Bible is saying. It's saying, look, if that father really loves a child, he delights in that child, going to correct it, going to challenge it, going to train, going to sometimes put him in a difficult place because I care about you. I care about, I love you deeply. And God loves us and cares about the quality of our life. And I don't mean quality in terms of the comforts. I mean the kind of life we live in the circles of influence that we engage. I'm talking about our fruitfulness and our expansion. And a lot of times God will use things to give us a voice in a way that we never would have had that voice. I was talking to someone after service on Saturday night person well advanced in years and they were still going back to their childhood and they were talking I'm seeing tears in their eyes there was pain there and it was connecting and we were talking about how God is wanting to do a new thing in your life and it's about what God is trying to grow into us and and trying to cause us new new branches to grow in our life and fruit to come out that other people are going to live out of. And I said, look, and I go, some of that is, you've got a voice. And I'm going to say that sometimes the Lord allows certain things to happen to give us a voice to bless others because we understand them at a whole another level. I was, I was reading something that um, was written by an author named Robert Burns, and he said, misery is like love. To speak its language truly, the author must have felt it. You really can't speak it if you haven't felt it. But sometimes God gives us a voice to bless others with. You know what I've noticed about some of the trials and pains of life is that they tend to cut two different directions. One direction I've watched cuts people in a certain way. They hit a wall. It's like they're walking with God, and all of a sudden things go wrong. Oh, the attitude drops. Sullen. Low-grade anger. Resentment. All of a sudden, you know, we're... We're not happy. The picture I always see is of the older brother in the prodigal, in the story of the prodigal with his arms crossed. Unblessed. Left out. But sometimes trials have a way of doing quite the opposite. They make us more open, softer, less proud, more ready to do something with God. That's what's happened in a lot of our lives here is that you know what I'm saying is things come our way. We get to choose how we're going to be. Listen, God has a good to bring through anything. And sometimes the most amazing seasons of expansion in our lives come when it's the toughest. And that's why we said at the outset that, that a crisis is actually an opportunity. And it's never more true than with the Lord. It's an opportunity to learn how to live for God in a way that really matters. It's easy to follow the Lord when everything is going our way. It shows up most beautifully and just in a way that is, is astonishing and, and flourishing when, when it's hard. 
to trust God, but we trust him anyway. And we lean into the Lord and we watch as we're whittled back. But you know what happens? The new thing starts to grow. And all of a sudden, there's a fresh branch beginning to grow. And all of a sudden, that branch is stronger than the one that was before. And it's starting to bear fruit. And the fruit is a better quality than what was there before. It wouldn't have happened if we hadn't dealt with this reality in a way that was trusting God and refusing to allow our heart to get hard to him. I'm going to suggest that this is a key, a real key. Listen to me. God wants us to grow. And this is the last thing I'll say about this, is that his goal for us, one of the keys here, is to always remember that his goal for us is fruitfulness and abundance. You say, well, okay. I am saying, he says, I want you to bear fruit. I want you to be filled with my life. Here's what that means. I asked him, I said, do you know what that means? What do you think that means? I said, what does that mean to you? What does it mean when we say God wants us to be more fruitful? Because it doesn't seem like something that connects with us. I'm going to say that it has to do with who we are. It has to do with the way we approach our life. It has to do with the way that we affect other people, the way that we negotiate the difficult places of our life. When everything in us wants to quit, run away, break our commitment, but we hold. It has to do with how we respond when we're hurt, how we deal with things that would have previously triggered out reactions in us from our past that were not good, that our family has passed down to us like a bad baton from generation to generation. But because of God in our life and our growth is taking place in him, we don't do it that way anymore. We make a change. What used to be a death word is now life. Things are happening. We're growing. We're getting stronger. We know more about the Lord. We're learning how to apply our faith in places where we previously would never have actually even tried to apply it. There's expansion going on. There's growth going on. There's real interaction going on with God. We're bearing fruit. Other people are living out of that fruit, being turned towards the Lord in greater ways, touched by Him. The change that's working in our life is affecting other people. That's part of what it means to become more fruitful. It was J.C. Ryle who said that many of us are content, and he used the language of his day, but it's nonetheless it works. We may not say it this way now, but I got the point. He says, you know what? Many of the followers of Jesus, many of us, he says, are content with a little Christianity. And they intentionally, that vagueness of that term, depending on how you choose to lean into that word little, many of us are content with just enough to get to heaven, Or maybe many of us are content with a small expression of what God's trying to do in our life. He's trying to create a big, he's trying to expand things in us. And part of that deal is going to be our willingness to cut away those dead branches and our willingness to be open to him when he's trying to work new things in us. And that's not always easy. But look, we were born not just to bear fruit, but to bear a lot of fruit. We were born to abound, and it doesn't happen passively. We get what we put in. Lord, I ask for you to bless this word as we've we've listened for your voice in the midst of all these things, Lord, and we're talking about a passage that you gave us, just these words you gave us, Lord, years years ago, 2,000 years ago, you spoke them. But in a way, Lord, they're speaking to us right now. And I pray, Lord, that some of us would be stirred at a very deep level to begin to see this time of our life as a season of growth and expansion, of of 
dimensions of fruitfulness, of enlargement, Lord. And it may not be an easy walk. A lot of growth comes in fits and stages, and it doesn't always come easy. And certainly pruning isn't an easy thing, but there's a growth in it. The wrestling produces the blessing as we learn to break through and trust you in ways that we would have typically not trusted you with before. And then we begin to challenge things in our life, God. We begin to have faith in ways that we didn't have faith before. And we begin to believe for things in our life, God. And we begin to claim things as promises, Lord. All of these things, this idea of expanding us, Lord. I just pray that you would put a hunger in our hearts to dive more deeply into your word. That this Easter would be a wonderful time for us to just connect with you at a, at a real essential and honest and true and deeper level that our faith would not just be a surface faith, but a faith that is rooted deeply and can survive the winds and the storms that inevitably come our way. And that those very storms and winds that typically could uproot a tree would actually grow our root system even more deep. But remember, Lord, you told us, and would you impress it on us, that in this way we can do nothing without you. We cannot do this without you. So turn our hearts towards you, Lord. Break us out of apathy. Help us with our attitudes. Give us faith. We want to trust you. I pray that you bless this closing time that we have. I pray that you bless this song and also our time of giving as we honor you as a people with our resource. We ask for your blessing, Lord. Work in our hearts. Keep working. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, God. Amen. <laughs>